In 2010, physicist Stephen Hawking wrote that philosophy is dead, and science has replaced philosophy as the way to attain knowledge. And in today's culture, many people would agree and have elevated science above all other disciplines. If something isn't scientifically provable, then it can't be known or it isn't worth wasting time. Obviously, this high view of science has damaging implications for Christianity as claims like God exists and Jesus rose from the dead are not scientifically testable. However, not many people with this view of science realize that there are logical problems that arise if science is thought to be the only way to knowledge. So in this episode, I am going to discuss this issue of what is called scientism, and I'll explain why it is problematic. So I hope you'll stick around and find out why we need more than just science to discover truth. Welcome back, everyone. In this lecture, we are going to be talking about uh, something called scientism. And uh, from if you listen to the introduction, you know uh, kind of what we're talking about. Scientism is this idea that science is the way to knowledge. And if you're not using science, uh, whatever you're talking about, if it's not scientifically provable or something like that, then it can't be known or it's not important. Okay. Um, and um, the Obviously, this has uh, major. This would cause major issues with Christianity, right? We talked about that in the introduction. Uh, you make statements like "God exists" and "God is good." Jesus rose from the dead. You know, if someone can't scientifically prove that, then someone who holds to scientism, whether they know that's a thing or not, they're going to say, "Well, I don't believe any of that stuff because we can't use science to prove it." Uh, so that was obviously a big issue for Christianity. So. Uh, but the thing is, what a lot of people, what's maybe a lot of people don't realize is that the, the scientism itself, there's there's issues with it. So uh, that's what we want to talk about today uh, to help you if you ever, you know, to not only inform uh, non-believers about this, but also to equip believers uh, if they're going out and doing evangelism and apologetics to help you uh uh, understand where this is kind of coming from and explain, be able to explain uh, why it's wrong. Okay, so we've got one last uh, Bible passage in our series. This is, uh, we're, we're coming to the end of what I am thinking in my head of as season one. <laughs> I've kind of uh, started thinking that I want to do a season two that deals with science faith issues. Uh, really talks about a bunch of issues that, uh, at the intersection of science and faith. Um, I've been helping teach classes, uh, science faith classes at Regent University, and uh, it's got me all thinking about that, and I think there's some great uh, lectures that I could make on that. So I'm thinking sci um, uh, le uh, season two will be uh, another series of videos, probably about this same length um, that I'll be working on uh, going forward and that's what we'll be talking about uh, next but anyways in this lecture and the next these are our last two lectures for season one uh, in this in this one we're talking about scientism and the next one I'm just gonna cap it off with just talking about the gospel and, and what Christians should be doing uh, 
So anyways, um, if, if you're familiar with how we do it, I always um, present a Bible passage at the beginning. And uh, just to hear what the Bible has to say about a few things, I love our passage for this lecture. Um, it is one of my favorite uh, when talking about this issue. I don't. Th- I think a lot of people overlook it. I know I did. I know I lo- overlooked it for a long time, and I didn't realize what I was looking at and, and the implications of it. Uh, I, I can't remember. Maybe I've talked about this passage before when we talked about the possibility of miracles. Um, you know, the Bible has a lot of miracles in it, but one point I made in a previous lecture was that when you actually look at how much time happens in the narrative of the biblical story and how many uh, miracles are actually in the Bible, you realize that, uh, for one, all those miracles are are all uh, clustered around these major events like the Exodus and Jesus' ministry uh, and and some of the uh, prophets like Elijah and Elisha. But besides those major events, uh, you you don't see that many miracles happening. But also, when you realize that the, all the uh, uh, the story takes over the over, the story takes place over about fourteen hundred years. And when you think about it, that's not that many miracles. So the Bible's not as full of miracles as people think it is. But anyways, here's a great uh, point that I wanted us to think about before we start talking about scientism. The passage today is from Matthew four verse twenty four. Here it says, Then the news about him spread throughout Syria. So they brought to him all those who were afflicted, those suffering from various diseases and intense pains, the demon-possessed, the epileptics, and the paralytics, and he healed them. So this is obviously talking about Jesus. He's going throughout Syria, and they bring all these people to him. What I wanted to point out to you today, though, is that notice this distinction they make here. Okay? Uh, uh you see there on that list various diseases and intense pains, demon possess, epileptics, and the paralytics. Here, um, I'm going to say some things about this, but let me let me read you a quote from Craig Blomberg in his commentary uh, with BNH Publishing, um, his commentary on Matthew. He says, quote, The most striking on the list is demon possession, which Matthew carefully distinguishes from ordinary diseases, including epilepsy. Uh, in, in the passage that's quoted is those having seizures. Contrary to what many today believe, the ancient world regularly and carefully distinguished between afflictions ascribed to demons and other forms of illness. Demon possession was viewed as a unique situation in which an evil spirit actually took control of an individual, acting and speaking through that person in, in at least partial independence of his or her own volition and consciousness. Almost everyone in ancient societies believed in the reality of demon possession and striking examples of it remain common enough today so as to be deniable only through severe naturalistic prejudice. Um, what's so interesting in this passage is that this is this passage is from the Gospel of Matthew. We're talking first century here, right? And back then, not many people realized this. It's because we're all chronological snobs, right? We think we're so smart because we know all this science. A lot of people think back then that if you just had any old mental disease, they just said that you were demon-possessed. But you see that this is this is evidence in the Bible that that's not the case, um, especially here. Now, I've heard, I read in one commentary that that Greek word that's translated to epileptics, um, we don't think they were literally talking about epilepsy because that's not what they called it. But it was it was basically those who have seizures is the is the um, li- the literal interpretation. 
It literally means those who have seizures. But you, but regardless of how you want to, you know, uh, translate it, like they, they just help you in, in my, in my, uh, in my translation here, the Christian standard Bible, they just help you instead of putting big old long something like those who have seizures, they just put epileptics. But it's talking about people who had seizures. But notice how the, the first century people, we've got diseases, intense pains, seizures, paralytics. They're not, they're distinguishing all this from demon possession. <laughs> so it's not like if you just had any old disease, they're going to say a demon's doing it. They made a distinction. And why would they make a distinction? Well, when you, when you, especially if you read the Gospel of Matthew, you see examples. Uh, it's in Mark as well. I mean, it's in it's in all the synoptics. We see demon possessed people, and what are they doing? They're speaking in languages they don't even know. They've got superhuman strength. You know, they're doing crazy things, evil things. And if you saw this happen, you would realize that's not just a mental illness. Mental illness doesn't give someone super strength and the ability to speak a different language, right? So, uh, anyways, I just like to point this out. We we tend to think that ancient peoples were stupid because they didn't know science, but they weren't stupid. <laughs> they know the difference between someone who was obviously mentally ill and someone who was obviously supernaturally empowered to be doing things they shouldn't be doing and they were evil things. So. They made a distinction between epileptics and demon possession. So I just always thought that was interesting. And I just thought it would be something good to be thinking about as we go into this lecture on uh, giving reasons to believe that scientism is not uh, the way to go. So science is great. And, and you know, I'll, I'll probably say this two or three times in this lecture. Science is wonderful. I, I love science. I, I love learning about the universe and the earth and life and all the things that science has to teach us, <clears throat> I just don't elevate science to the level that uh, some people do, and, and that's what we're talking about. So, as always, I'm going to give you some questions for reflection that you can be thinking about. Um, I'm going to I present them up front, and then I remind you of them later on. And you can just be thinking about these as I go through the lecture. If you want to interact with me, you can answer these questions in the uh, in the comment section of videos on, on YouTube or wherever else you're watching this. If you're listening to this on a podcast, you can send me an email if you'd like. Uh, discussing these questions for reflection or anything else, um, you can go to my academic website, bkylekeltz.com. So, yeah, if you're listening to this on a podcast, you should know how to spell my name. There's no there's no spaces. It's just bkylekeltz.com. Uh, there's a contact form you can fill out, and it'll send an email directly to me. I'd love to hear from you guys. Here's our questions for reflection for this lecture. First one is, some people have argued that philosophy and religion deal with feelings and opinions, while science deals with facts and knowledge. Do you agree with this? Why or why not? Second question is, do you find anything wrong with this claim? And here's our claim. We can only know truths that are verifiable through the methods of science. Three, can science prove whether or not God exists? Four, can science prove whether or not Jesus rose from the dead? So just some things to be thinking about as we go through these. You should be getting the answers to all those as we go along. Before I define what scientism is, I just wanted to make a few points um, and talk about another passage that we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 through 24 says, For since in God's wisdom the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. For the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, 
a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Okay, I wanted to use this passage just to make a couple points before we get started, like I said. Um, you know, in, in verse 21, I, I just think that Paul makes a great, a, a great point. He says that in God's wisdom, God determined that the world cannot come to know him through wisdom alone, right? Uh, and I think this is relevant because in the, in, in the field of philosophy of religion, for example, it is known, and I mentioned this in the last lecture, it is known that there is no way to reason your way, to, to uh, formulate a philosophical argument to things like the, the resurrection of Jesus or to the existence of the Trinity, right? We, we mentioned that. There are many philosophical ways to determine that God exists and some other philosophical ways to determine what he is like without using scripture. However, there's no line of reasoning that can lead you to the necessity of Jesus dying on the cross, right? Or the, or the uh, Trinity. Uh, but this passage indicates that God wanted it that way for a reason. He wanted it that way for a reason. And, th- and, that, and one reason seems to be that it places everything on an even plane, Right? Um, the the learned uh, uh, people with a lot of uh, credentials, uh, been to school, they might think that they're better than unlearned people. But the gospel's for everyone, right? Since everyone must come to know God through the gospel, provided by God through the apostles and Christians, uh, anyone can know God. You know, this isn't some kind of uh, Christianity. Isn't some kind of Gnostic uh, sect where you. You, you join the in-group and you, and you go up and you get the new level of knowledge the higher you get. If, if we preach the gospel, and then when you understand the gospel and you trust in Jesus for salvation, you are a Christian right then and there. You've got a process of sanctification to go through, and you've got a whole life of service to, to Christ ahead of you. But we're all equal, right? And, and all you need to understand to become a Christian uh, is understand the gospel, and, and, you know, God revealed himself, his triune nature. Jesus revealed himself, the second person of the Trinity, both fully God and fully man. He revealed himself. Uh, and we can't know these things through reason alone. So it, kind of what Paul is saying here, <clears throat> excuse me, what Paul is saying here is that the world did not know God through wisdom. So it, it really goes along with what we said in that last lecture over faith and reason. Uh, a lot of what God is is only is only revealed to us by God. It's it's a uh, truths of faith only, right? Now when you get to verse twenty three, though, uh, we get a feel for what Paul and the early Christians were up against. Uh, everyone they were surrounded by thought their beliefs were absurd. <laughs> uh, the Jews were anticipating an earthly conquering Messiah, right? Uh, the Greeks uh, they highly valued uh, honor, esteem, success. They valued their philosophical systems. So when both groups heard the gospel pertaining to a crucified criminal, they had a hard time accepting it, didn't they? Um, you know, that uh, we're supposed to worship some guy who died on a cross? That's not our conquering king. The, the, the Greeks would say, that's not a very wise way to go. <laughs> I'm supposed to follow this guy who died on a cross? Like, are you kidding me? Um, you know, that's not very honorable. That's not very successful. And and you and you still have people who think that today. But I, I just I like to I like to bring this I like to pull up this passage because I just 
I just like to remind us, uh, as, for Christians anyways, um, people have had issues with this stuff from day one. You know, a, a lot of people have this idea that nowadays, since we have science, we know better. You know, all this religious stuff is just uh, leftovers from an age of ignorance. Uh, but don't think that just because science has been around for the last few hundred years that, uh, that only now we're living in some dark age. People have been rejecting the gospel from day one. Now, if you go back to the lectures where we talk about the truth of Jesus' resurrection, I show evidence, you know, the, the very existence of the church that arose out of Jerusalem where um, the two main groups there, the Jews and the, the, um, the Romans, were hostile to Christianity. Uh, the very existence of the church that got started in Jerusalem is evidence that uh, Jesus rose from the dead. But, you know, so, but people who weren't there to see Jesus race being, you know, uh, people who weren't there to see Jesus after he died, uh, before he ascended, um, they were still having issues with this, right? So, um, anyways, don't, don't think that we live in some different time today. Uh, the, the beautiful thing is that God has wanted us to know who he is. But it's not some knowledge that you have to be an elitist to discover. Anybody can know it. Um, but as you preach the gospel, you're just going to find um, uh, people who, who don't like it. And, and of course, what we're talking about today is, is, is this view called scientism. A lot of people reject the gospel. They reject the things of Christianity because they put a very high emphasis on science. Um, they're doing, this is an epistemological viewpoint, they're doing epistemology, which is the theory of knowledge in philosophy. Uh, they don't realize it. But, uh, so let me define what, I, here's, here's where we're going to use, uh, here's how I'm going to define scientism in this lecture, okay? And, and I, um, I, uh, I get this definition from the book Philosophical Foundations for a Christian Worldview, uh, but I will say that, uh, Okay, yeah, I'm sorry. I jumped ahead in my slides because I was trying to find this other book. Uh, J.P. Moreland, the Christian philosopher J.P. Moreland, wrote a book called Scientism and Secularism, Learning to Respond to a Dangerous Ideology uh, by uh, Wheaton, uh, excuse me, by uh, Crossway. Uh, he, he wrote this book in 2018. I highly recommend that book, Scientism and Secularism, Learning, res Learning to Respond to a Dangerous Ideology by J.P. Moreland. If you want to dig into... Uh, answers to uh, scientism. I got a lot of this from his book. Uh, I got some of it, like my definition of scientism, from the book Philosophical Foundations for a Christian Worldview. That's basically like an intro textbook to the um, uh, uh, the intersection between philosophy and, and Christianity. Um, but anyways, I recommend that book by J.P. Moreland. But uh, my definition is from Philosophical Foundations for Christian Worldview by J.P. Moreland and William Craig. They define scientism as the view that science is the very paradigm of truth and rationality. So that's what we've been getting at. And when they make some distinctions and go more into detail on their definition, they say that the view, that, the view of scientism says that something is not true or rational. Uh, you know, and that's, those are two different things. Uh, something is not true or rational if it, and there's three things, if it does not square with currently well-established scientific beliefs, if it is not within the domain of entities appropriate for scientific investigation, or if it is not susceptible to scientific methodology. 
So very detailed things. But basically what we're saying is if something's not scientifically provable or in the, in the, um, in the domain of currently well-established scientific beliefs, it is either not true or it's not rational. Okay, that's how they're defining scientism. And if you, if you also, if you look in that book, Philosophical Foundations for Christian Worldview, they go, they go in more detail. They explain that there's, there's been historically two versions of scientism. There's a stronger version and a weaker version. What's called strong scientism and weak scientism. <laughs> uh, strong scientism is defined uh, again, getting this from Moreland and Craig. Defined as the view that some proposition or theory is true and or rational to believe if and only if it is a scientific proposition or theory. Weak scientism is the view that allows for the existence of truths apart from science that can have a minimal position, excuse me, that can have a minimal positive rationality status without the support of science, but says that science is the most valuable, serious, and authoritative sector of human learning. What I wanted to show you today in this lecture is, is reasons to, to believe that strong scientism is self-defeating and weak scientism is self-undermining and just demonstrably false. Okay, So either one of them is, is, is a bad view, and that's what we're getting at. Before I did, though, I wanted to show you an example of kind of a statement of scientism being lived out. Um, if you've ever he heard of a famous book called The Grand Design, by Stephen Hawking. Uh, maybe you're familiar with this passage. So in, in the grand design, and this is in 2010. Um, I think I mentioned that in the introduction. Basically, Stephen Hawking was saying that philosophy is done with, right? He's not attacking Christianity or anything right now, but obviously, uh, you know, if you've been listening to all these other lectures, you know that a lot of uh, apologetics deals with philosophy and philosophical things that are outside the realm of science. Anyways, let me let me read you this quote. Uh, if you are watching this on a video, you can see it. But for those uh, who are listening, I, I need to read this. It's, it's a long quote, but it'll be the only uh, long one in this lecture. So if you'll bear with me, Stephen Hawking says, "We each exist for but a short time, and in that time, explore but a small part of the whole universe. But humans are a curious species. We wonder, we seek answers. Living in this vast in this vast world, it is by turns kind and cruel." And gazing at the immense heavens above, people have always asked a multitude of questions. How can we understand the world in which we find ourselves? How does the universe behave? What is the nature of reality? Where does all this come from? Did the universe need a creator? Most of us do not spend most of our time worrying about these questions, but almost all of us worry about them some of the time. Traditionally, these are questions for philosophy, but philosophy is dead. Philosophy had not kept up with modern developments in science, particularly physics. Scientists have become the bearers of the torch of discovery in our quest for knowledge. Stephen Hawking is saying that philosophy is dead. It, it can't tell us about anything anymore. Science has overtaken philosophy, and science now is the way. If you want to discover truth, and, or if you're on the quest for knowledge, you need to either become a scientist or ask a scientist. <laughs> so definitely a statement of scientism, right? Now, uh, but you know, like I said, and I think this is actually something that is not, uh, it's not controversial in the study of philosophy. If you ask a professional philosopher, he or she most likely won't be a scientist, and, and he or she will be able to spot that this is a self-defeating claim. 
uh, you know, statements like that are usually made by people who aren't philosophically trained. Obviously, right? You know, and and I'm not just saying this because I'm a philosopher and I'm trying to keep my job. <laughs> it's just demonstrably false. So, like I said, let me. I was going to show you these three things. I was going to show you that scientism is self-refuting, and show you that weak scientism undermines itself. Uh, it undermines the very possibility of science, and it's just false. Okay, so I'm I'm going to show you why all these things are the case. Now, obviously, this first one. Uh, it, you know, and we've done this in several portions in this course, right, in, the, in these lectures. Sometimes a statement is just self-defeating because if it's true, it's false. That's what I mean by self-defeating. Sometimes someone will make a statement, and, and if that statement is true, then the very statement itself is false, and that's called uh, what William Lawhead calls, uh, he's the philosopher who wrote all my intro to philosophy, the intro to philosophy textbook I use in my classes. William Lawhead calls it self-referential inconsistency. So, if, you know, if I say something like, um, everything I tell you is a lie, you know, would you, would you believe what I'm telling you? The, the problem is, if you believe what I'm saying, then you have reason to believe that what I'm saying is false. Uh, you know, if I say everything I tell you is a lie, that statement itself must also be a lie, because I'm saying everything I tell you is a lie. So if I tell you, if I'm telling you that, that I'm saying something that is both true and false, and that's just absurd, right? So what I'm saying is just basically nonsense. Well, that's what's happening with strong scientism. It might not be as self-evident as that one I just gave you, but, um, you know, strong scientism, again, let's go look at that definition. The view that some proposition or theory is true and or rational to believe if and only if it's a scientific proposition or theory. But let's think about the very statement of strong scientism. It's saying only those statements that are scientific theories are true or rational. This would entail a statement like I have on my screen here. It would entail the statement, there are no truths apart from scientific truths. That would be like another statement of strong uh, scientism. But here's, here's, the, here's the problem with that, right? The very statement of strong scientism, that strong scientism is true, that there are no truths apart from scientific truths, is itself a philosophical statement, right? What scientific test, what kind of theory can you formulate? What kind of test can you formulate and run to test if science, strong scientism is true? You can't. You have to use philosophy to defend that strong scientism is true. You can't use some empirical way of, of uh, showing that it, the very uh, viewpoint itself is true. So that means it's a self-defeating statement. Because strong scientism is a philosophical claim, it means it's not a scientific claim. And that means that if strong scientism is true, then strong scientism is false. right? Uh, strong scientism either is not rational or it's just false, depending on what you mean by what strong scientism is, that, that only those truths that, can, that are scientific truths are rational or truth, <laughs> right? So strong scientism is self-defeating. It's just nonsense. Uh, it can't be true uh, because it is, it's itself a philosophical claim. It's not a scientific claim. So if someone realizes this, maybe they're going to kind of switch to that uh, viewpoint of weak scientism. And again, here's our definition. The view that allows for the existence of uh, truths apart from science that can have a minimal positive rationality status without the support of science, but says that science is the most valuable, serious, and authoritative sector of human learning. 
Okay. The problem with this is is two things. Okay. It's saying that scientific truths are the the best truth. Science is the best way to learn about reality. The problem is that a lot of people don't realize that science has philosophical foundations. Okay? And if science has philosophical foundations, if you can't do science without presupposing these philosophical truths, uh, then if weak scientism is true, then the very foundations of science are unimportant or not rational, and that means that all science of itself just comes crumbling down. And let me, let me talk to you about what I mean when I say that. I've got a list of ten things. And this is a list of concepts that science presupposes. You can find this in, in, William and, uh, excuse me, in Moreland and Craig's Philosophical Foundations for a Christian Worldview. They've got a list of things that you have to... Um, now, this is a list of philosophical truths, okay? And you, you can see... If you haven't heard this list before, you can see that it's it's a pretty reasonable list. And what we're saying is you need to believe all these things before you can even do science. Without these things, you can't even science isn't even possible. Okay? Uh, and here's a list of 10 things. One is uh, you have to believe in the existence of a theory-independent external world, a world that actually exists outside your mind. Uh, you need to believe in the orderly nature of the external world, that it, that it um, acts orderly in all times and places. You need to believe in the knowability of the existence of the external... Excuse me. You need to believe in the knowability of the external world. Four, you need to believe in the existence of truth. Five, you need to believe in the laws of logic. Six, it it's, uh, has its basis in the reliability of our cognitive and sensory faculties. Seven, um, based in the adequacy of language to describe the world. Eight, the existence of ethical values used in science, right? Like, like always tell the truth. Uh, don't report findings that didn't happen because you're getting paid, uh, just because you're getting paid, or stuff like that. Nine, the uniformity of nature and induction. Ten, the existence of numbers, <laughs> right? Um, if you don't think that there's an external world outside your mind, if you don't think the, the world acts uh, in an orderly fashion, if you don't think that you can even know the world, if you don't believe in truth, if you don't believe in the laws of logic, if you think your senses aren't reliable, if you don't think our language can describe the world, if you, if you don't believe in ethics at all, if you, uh, don't think that, uh, um, if you don't think that nature is uniform and that we can make inductive, use inductive reasoning to draw conclusions about it, and if you don't even believe in numbers, you're not going to be someone who's going to be doing science, right? <laughs> but notice that all these things... The existence of the, the world outside your mind, that it's knowable, uh, the existence of truth. All of these are epistemological things. These aren't, none of these things are things that you can do a test to, to prove, right? What, what test am I going to do? What, what equipment am I going to use to see if there's a world outside my mind, <laughs> right? Because the, the very equipment itself is something that is, uh, may or may not be outside my mind, but I can't use that equipment to show that it's in or outside my mind, right? I have to use philosophy to determine these things. The laws of logic, the existence of truth, uh, morality. All of these things are philosophical truths, and all of these serve as the basis for doing science. Now, notice this, though. But weak scientism was saying that things apart from scientific truths have this minimal value that's not really important. If that's the case, then the very foundations of science itself, it's built on all these unimportant truths. 
So, science, so it just comes crumbling down. Does that make sense? On my slide it says, science would have no foundation if weak scientism is true. Because we were saying with weak scientism, you believe that, well, maybe there's other non-scientific things with a minimal positive rationality status. Um, but but uh, science is the most serious way. So that, that undermines, it basically cuts the branch out for me, out for me uh, underneath yourself, right? You're saying that all these things that science is based on are unimportant things, and they've got a minimal positive rationality status. So scientism is self-undermining. Uh, weak scientism is self-undermining is what we're saying. But also we would argue that weak scientism just is false. Okay, uh, It is well known that science is a uh, field of study that is based in empirical observations, right? You you study the, the world, you make all sorts of observations, and you kind of build these up to make scientific theories, make general conclusions about things, universal statements like laws of nature. But it's all built on inductive reasoning. And uh, that means that, you know, you can, like, we assume that the, or maybe we have philosophical reasons for believing that nature is uniform and, and the universe acts in orderly ways, but I can't travel to the other end of the universe to test that. I can't observe it for myself to see if the laws of nature hold on the other side of the universe, just like they do over here, right? I, it's kind of, you know, it's an assumption that's built into our theories. It's also maybe something that we can use philosophy to argue for, but I can't use inductive reasoning just from where I'm at here on the earth to, to, to know that um, the laws of nature hold in all times and places, right? Um, so, so a lot of our theories in science aren't 100% certain. A lot of things in life aren't. But having said that, there are some things in philosophy that are certain. <laughs> so, uh, you know, weak scientism is saying that things that aren't scientifically provable have this minimal rationality status. But we can just show that that's just false. And I've got a list here on my slide of things uh, that fall into this category. Things that you can be, a, you know, there's not much in life you can be certain of. Some people say it's death and taxes, right? But there's some things that are just self-evidently true, 100% true. And I've got a list here. Uh, a priori truths, intuitive truths, introspective truths. Uh, red is a color is something you can be certain of. <laughs> And, you know, and my slide says a priori truth. That's uh, an a priori truth. That's just a fancy Latin word from the one before, but it means non-empirical truth, something that you can just know by if you understand the concept. Another a priori truth is all bachelors are unmarried, right? Um, one plus one equals two. If you just understand those concepts, you don't have to use your senses to go and confirm that, right? You know, like it would be silly to try to uh, empirically verify the statement, all bachelors are unmarried, right? If I go to every single bachelor and say, are you married? If this person is a bachelor, obviously the answer is going to be, no, I'm not married because I'm a bachelor. Uh, some people might lie to you, but they wouldn't be a bachelor. But anyways, uh, you can know that for certain if you just understand it's an a priori truth. Red is a color is an example. Some things are, are just intuitively self-evidently true like like moral truths torturing babies for fun is wrong maybe that's a little controversial i just like to throw that in there um but i would say that you don't have to we don't need to do a test right uh, if you're gonna say well I, maybe torturing babies for fun is okay uh let's get a baby in here and let's torture it <laughs> hopefully no one's gonna do that uh 
because they know that they don't need to see a test. They don't need to show this. They just know it's they just know it's wrong to do that, right? Um, I, I am now thinking about science as an introspective truth. I'm thinking about science right now as I'm talking to you, and I can tell you it's true. I'm 100% certain that I'm thinking about science because I'm introspecting, and I, I know that's the case. You can't use science to prove that because you don't have access to my thoughts and my inner experiences. Um, but I can tell you I'm 100% certain that right now I'm thinking about science. Uh, so that that the, these truths are all things that aren't scientifically testable, but they're not scientific truths. But they are more certain than science. So, that, so we can show that uh, using these philosophical concepts, weak scientism just is, is false. Okay, so those are all just really quick reasons. I mean, I know it's taken me a while to explain it all, but you can just break that down. I could probably give someone, you know, what they call an elevator speech to show them really quickly that strong and weak scientism are both wrong. Um, Now, having said all that, though, I I like to make this point. um, Oh, you know what? I was thinking of something I'm about to say after I make this point. Yeah, yeah. So, uh. Just to go further in arguing uh, that that scientism is false, whether it's obviously strong scientism is self-defeating, so that's absurd in principle, but weak scientism, just to give some more reasons and to show that we really need philosophy to know certain things about the world, especially the most important questions. If you remember, Stephen Hawking is saying, talking about these important questions, right? Um what did he call it? Uh, a mu- we have asked a multitude of questions. Okay, so he didn't qualify what kind of questions, but really important questions about life, right? He's, he mentioned um, how does the universe behave? What is the nature of reality? Where does all this come from? Does the universe need a creator? Well, he's saying that science answers these, but what I, I want to point out is that science in principle, and I get this from J.P. Moreland's book, by the way, if you want to hear him explain it in detail, I recommend that book again, Scientism and Secularism, Learning to Respond to a Dangerous Ideology. In principle, there's things that science cannot answer. Okay. And that's I wanted to show you this list. The origin of the universe, the origin of the origin of the fundamental laws of nature, the fine-tuning of the universe, the origin of consciousness, and the existence of morality, rationality, or and beauty. Okay. Uh and this just shows you why philosophy is so important and why philosophers are never going away unless we just turn all of our schools into STEM schools. But I would still argue that philosophy is going to be important even though there won't be any employed philosophers. But anyways, science in principle cannot explain the origin of the universe. And why is that? Uh, J.P. Moreland emphasizes that science explains... What science does is that in any given case, it explains one aspect of the universe by appealing to other aspects of the universe, right? Uh, For example, uh, scientists explain the formation of water by appealing to the properties of hydrogen and oxygen, right? Um, They they explain the extinction of the dinosaurs through the the catastrophic events that happened, these physical explanations. Um, Anytime science is explaining something in the universe it looks for natural causes that exist elsewhere in the universe in space and time right so if you're going to try if science is going to try to explain the origin of the universe 
It's trying to explain the origin of all time and space, but it can't do that in principle because it wouldn't be able to use some other aspect of the universe to explain that because if it's explaining all of space and time, there's nothing else to appeal to, right? So there is no natural explanation for the origin of the universe. It's not going to be something that you can use science to explain, okay? Uh, that's assuming if we think there is an origin or a beginning to the universe. Uh, it can't explain the, the origin of the fundamental laws of nature. And why is this? It's because usually laws are, um, usually they'll appeal to some more fundamental laws to explain another law, right? Uh, in, in my slides you see here, it says many laws are explained by the existence of more fundamental laws. Um, you know, there's, there's, uh, like I said, there's many laws of nature that are explained by the existence of other laws, right? Um, scientists believe that there are fundamental laws that aren't, aren't explained by any more fundamental laws. Um, and some scientists believe there's possibly one or more laws that explain the fundamental laws that we don't know about. Um, I, I, I feel like I've talked about this before, but I can't remember which lecture it was. But if you ever look at it, it might have been in some of those on fine-tuning, I think. But when, when scientists try to explain certain laws, right, they appeal to more fundamental laws. Um, uh, eventually you get to the fundamental forces of nature, like the weak and strong force, electromagnetic gravity. But ultimately, I think when you look at the study of the laws of nature and, and, and physics and all that, a lot of scientists think, especially in, when you hear this in the discussion between the relationship between um, big picture uh, physics, like cosmology, and uh, small picture physics like the uh, quantum mechanics and stuff like that. Uh, what they see is that when you try to apply quantum mechanics on a macro level, it doesn't work. And, and whenever you're looking at the way we understand the world at a macro level in cosmology, it doesn't work on the macro scale. They think that when you kind of what's going to help make sense out of everything on both scales is, and what's going to be able to do what, what they call unify the laws of nature, what's going to be able to explain why we have all these laws of nature, is some one force that's going to explain it all, to my understanding. But imagine if we do get to this one fundamental force, or this one fundamental law of nature. How are we going to explain that? Because what science does is it explains the existence of, of laws that we see in terms of more fundamental laws. But if you get to that one unifying force, there will be no law above that to explain why that's the case. It's just going to be a brute fact, something that has no explanation. So the origin of the fundamental laws of nature, whether it's one or many, um, you, science will never be able to explain that. We already had a lecture on the fine-tuning of the universe. If you go to that lecture on the argument from fine-tuning, you will see that science cannot explain the fine-tuning of the universe. Uh, we talked about in that lecture that the, the laws of nature, the cosmological constants, um, the laws of nature don't determine what the cosmological constants are. They just so happen to be at these, these just-right levels, these fine-tuned levels for life to exist. But since uh, the laws of nature don't explain why that's the case, um, then science can't explain the fine-tuning of the universe. Science, uh, can, and we're saying in principle, so what we're saying is it doesn't matter how advanced we get because what we know what science is and what these, the nature of these questions are, we know that it doesn't matter how advanced science gets, 
by the very nature of what science is and by the very nature of these questions, science will never be able to explain these things in principle. That's what I mean when, when we say this. The origin of consciousness, right? We had a whole lecture. We had two lectures, one on mind-body dualism, one on arguments for the soul. And we gave reasons to believe that the mind is immaterial, right? But the problem is science doesn't deal with immaterial things. It's a, it's a empirical discipline that only deals with physical entities, physical cause and effect. So science can't weigh in on the question of the origin of consciousness because consciousness is an immaterial subjective experience. Uh, my soul, my powers of reasoning are only, uh, the only person that can observe the existence of my mind is me. You can see it indirectly in the way I act. And we can know that other people have minds because we see that they're acting rationally, but we can't see their consciousness. We can't experience their, their mind because that's subjective to them. So that's, that's beyond the realm of science, which is an empirical object of discipline. It, it deals with physical things, but the mind and soul is immaterial. It deals with objective evidence, but the mind and soul and consciousness are subjective experiences. So this is in principle out of the domain of science. Although it can learn a lot of things about the mind and, and obviously, right, the nervous system and all that, it can't, it can't tell us about the origin of these things. Why are, the, why, why are we... Um, as human beings and, and other animals, how are we able to be conscious in the first place? Um, you know, it, it, it wouldn't make any sense to think that physical entities can give rise to immaterial entities, right? So, I mean, anyways, that's that gets pretty philosophical. Some people would argue uh, that they could, but anyways, uh, you see what we're saying. Why, in principle, science can't um, talk about the origin of consciousness. And we would say, uh, and this is my last point, is it not? Yeah. Point five is science in principle cannot explain the existence of morality, rationality, or beauty. The rationality part, especially, uh, we had a whole lecture on that. It's called the argument from reason. Reason itself, rationality, presupposes that you have a choice. You you are able to know. Uh, you are able to know things. You're able to know the external world or, or the internal world. Doesn't matter. You're you're able to know things with your mind. You're able to weigh evidence, and then you choose. Which, which side of the evidence is, is the best, right? In any given decision or any given argument, you weigh the evidence and you have a choice to which one you think is true. It, it presupposes free will and it presupposes the ability to think. If, if uh, you don't have a soul, everything about you is, is material, but also everything about you is governed by the laws of nature, then you actually can't be rational. There's a whole lecture on it. It's called The Argument from Reason if you're interested in that. Uh, but also morality. We talked about this uh, in the, I think was it the argument from reason or is it the um, uh, the the moral argument for God's existence? I think we we touched on this point. Science is a descriptive discipline. It explains how the world works. It doesn't explain how the world ought to be. If you say that killing is immoral, you're saying that people ought not to kill each other. But if if uh, if you're just using science, science just describes the world. It doesn't. It doesn't make prescriptive uh, things like that. It, 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 science can't make this prescriptive things saying how the world ought to be. It just describes how the world is. So it's in principle out of its realm, and so is beauty. Things like beauty, aesthetic truths. This is beautiful. Well, how can you establish scientifically that something's beautiful? Maybe you can come up with a scientific definition, but you see where I'm going. 
So uh, this is just more reasons to show, more reasons to believe that scientism is incorrect. Um, uh, s strong scientism is self-defeating and weak scientism is just false. And we want to emphasize that it, science cannot explain, in principle, cannot explain these important questions that Stephen Hawking was saying that science is, is at the helm of. Um, <laughs> I, w I like to focus on this. Uh, you know, ultimately, if someone is, is scientifically minded, uh, atheist, kind of naturalist, a lot of times they're going to say something like this, right? I don't believe, I don't need religion because everything is explainable in terms of the laws of nature. Um, I've read a book by uh, the theologian Vo uh, Vern Poitras, okay? And it just kind of, I thought it was so interesting the way he put this. Uh, the book is called Redeeming Science, A God-Centered Approach. It's, it's another book by Crossway Books. And uh, in it, he talked about, he was talking about science and, and where it intersects with religion and all that. But in this one portion of the book, uh, it's, 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 it's up front. It's like in the first chapter, I think, like page 13. He starts talking about what the laws of nature are and, uh, and, and starts talking about, you know, if you're thinking about the laws of nature, if you're someone, especially if you're someone who believes that the laws of nature explain everything. He said, well, you know, if you start to think about it, uh, monotheists who believe that uh, the, the explanation for everything is that God exists and creates and sustains the universe, uh, and, and naturalists who think that the laws of nature explain everything. There, there's no explanation for the laws of nature, but the laws of nature explain why everything is happening the way it is and why everything exists. Poitras points out that yeah, these two types of people, they're actually uh, they're, they're not that far off from each other. They, they may not realize it, but they're not that far off. He says, because let's look at the laws of nature and let's look at some of the beliefs that scientists have about these. Um, and let's and let's just kind of let, let's look at something. So uh, if you if you've seen my slides, you see what I'm talking about. Uh, Poitras mentions that. So let's talk about, uh, you know, if we're saying everything is explained by the laws of nature, what we would be saying is everything is explained by things that uh, the laws of nature, right? They hold in all places and at all times. The laws of nature never change. The laws of nature are invisible ideas thought to be true. The laws of nature regulate all activity and events and are unbreakable. And the laws of nature are understandable, that is, um, they make sense to rational minds. So the laws of nature, in a sense, are rational. Um, right? The laws of nature are all these things. Now, Poitras points out, well, let's, let's, th let's think about this. Uh, what, what does that mean the laws of nature are like? Because when we say that they hold in all places and at all times, Poitras said, well, that kind of sounds like uh, the laws of nature are omnipresent and eternal. They hold in all places and at all times. They're never changing. Uh, they never change, right? They're, they're unchanging. They're immutable. Uh, they're invisible ideas, thought to be true. That means they're truthful, but they're in, immaterial. They're in, uh, invisible. They regulate all activity and events and are unbreakable. That, that means they're omnipotent or something close to that. And they're, they're rational. You can understand them. That, and, and understanding usually is only takes place in minds. They're personal. So, you know, in one instance, you've got an explanation of the laws of nature. The other instance, you're looking at a list that sounds like, you know, just read all those things off. Omnipresent, eternal, unchanging, immutable, truthful, immaterial, invisible, omnipotent, personal. Uh, in, 
you know, one thing is talking about the laws of nature. The other one sounds a lot like just a list of attributes of God. So Poitras was pointing out, if you think that everything's explainable by the laws of nature, but you don't think the laws of nature are explainable, you're, you're believing that everything's explainable by a list of things that sound a lot like the attributes of God. So anyways, interesting. Uh, I don't, I'm not saying this proves anything or, or that you need to lead with this, but I just thought that was so interesting. You know, someone who thinks that everything's explainable by the laws of nature, uh, they're not very far off from a, from a theist. <laughs> Maybe that's something that you could uh, think about or, or, or bring up to an unbelieving friend. You know, you and I aren't so different. <laughs> uh, but anyways, um, so yeah, one thing I want to emphasize, just trying to finish this out. Um, always remember, I, I wanted to make a couple points. Always remember, don't don't let someone say that the existence of God is a scientific question because it's not. And don't let someone say that Jesus didn't raise, wasn't risen from the dead because that's obviously scientifically incorrect, okay? For one... Uh, uh, the question of God's existence is not a scientific question. It is a philosophical question. We just pointed out that science, in principle, can explain the origins of the universe. Okay, And a lot of the arguments for God's existence, like the cosmological arguments, argue that God must be this, uh, uh, this external cause of the universe, uh, this unchanging, necessary cause to, for the uh, explanation of all of contingent reality in the universe. So um, that is not scientifically testable, right? It's something that you have to use philosophy to, to come uh, to. And I, I like to point out, too, when people start talking about a multiverse, that's, that's philosophy. That's not science, per se. When you start talking about multiverses, you're talking about, well, I think the universe is the way it is right here now because of this thing that's outside the universe that I don't have access to. Now you're in the realm of metaphysics. You're not doing science. You're doing metaphysics. Okay. So, you know, what, what reasons do you have that everything has to be a physical cause? So you're going and looking for a physical cause outside the universe for what we see in the universe. That's what you really need to question. But anyways, regardless of whether they think it's God or, or multiverse, you're doing metaphysics whenever you're thinking of the origins of the universe. It's a philosophical question, not a scientific question. Because we don't have direct access to it. It's not scientifically um, observable. Jesus' resurrection is a historical question. It is not a scientific question. And I, I love to stress this. I probably mentioned it in the lectures on Jesus' resurrection. But if someone says, well, I know that Jesus didn't rise from the dead because from science tells us that uh, people don't rise from the dead. If you look, I think I did mention this in, in either the lecture on Jesus' resurrection or, or the possibility of miracles. The point is, Jesus' resurrection is not something that we think that one day we'll discover that it is scientifically possible, okay? Jesus' resurrection is a miracle. If you look at what we defined a miracle as, I think I have it on the next slide. Um, no, I, I don't have our definition of a miracle in front of me. Oh, actually, I do have a, def a definition of a miracle in front of me, but it's not the one we worked with. But let me just read this one to you. This is from Wayne Grudem, uh, the theologian Wayne Grudem in his Systematic Theology book. And this was really close to what we use. He defines a miracle as a less common kind of God's activity in which he arouses people's awe and wonder and bears witness to himself. As Christians, we don't want to define and we don't define a miracle as a breaking of a law of nature. Right, Because if God created the universe and basically is the author of the laws of nature, 
then it's not like there's there's nothing about all that that entails that he has to hold to the laws of nature, right? They're not unbreakable laws. He makes them. He can he can uh, he can deal with them if he wants to. But it makes sense that he would keep an orderly world, so reality makes sense to us, and so our uh, our, our moral choices have uh, um, have uh, moral. Uh, we can have moral responsibility. We've talked about this before. But anyway, so we don't call a, a miracle a breaking of the laws of nature. And we wouldn't even say a law of nature is something that's unbreakable. We just call it a regularity. That's the way God usually runs the world. And occasionally, very rarely, uh, he's, or, or, you know, it depends on the evidence we're looking at. Maybe he does it a little bit more than what we realize. But it's it's God entering into the world and, and uh, acting not in the same way that he usually does, but it's a miracle is, is, is that it's God revealing himself in some way to, to give us a message. Jesus resurrection is a miracle. And it's because we know that people don't raise from the dead. That's the whole point. We're not saying that science is one day going to find out it's possible. If it was naturally possible, then there wouldn't be anything special about Jesus resurrection. The whole point is that you're not, that you can't rise from the dead. If you, you if you're raised from the dead, we know that it's only the only explanation for that is that God did it, right? And that's one of the reasons why uh, Jesus' resurrection is so amazing is because it God rose him from the dead, and if and if he did that, which we think he did, it confirms everything that Jesus said about himself that he was sinless and all those other things. Because <clears throat> God wouldn't raise someone from the dead if they were a liar, right? Well, anyways, uh, Jesus' resurrection is a historical question. We look at the historical evidence. We don't just, in principle, believe it's false because it's not scientifically possible. That's the whole point. <laughs> so we look at the, the historical evidence to determine if we think it's true or not. We don't rely on science to tell us that people can't rise from the dead. Okay? So anyways, just trying to, just trying to put those in context and remind you that uh, don't let someone take science and beat you over the head with it. Okay? Uh, the God's existence is a scientific uh, is is a philosophical question, not a scientific question, and so is the existence of truth. By the way, and Jesus' resurrection is a historical question, not a scientific question. So let's. Uh, that, but that's all I had to say about scientism, and uh, we've, we're going to have one more lecture left. But before I talk about it, let me uh, get to these questions for reflection. So if you remember, here's our questions for reflection before we close out with our quote. The first one is, some people have argued that philosophy and religion deal with feelings and opinions, while science deals with facts and knowledge. Do you agree with this? Why or why not? Two is, do you find anything wrong with this claim? We can only know truths that are verifiable through the methods of science. If you didn't already know that, now you do. Uh, three, can science prove whether or not God exists? And four, can science prove whether or not Jesus rose from the dead? And again, here's our quote from uh, Hugh Ross from the Science Faith Ministry, Reasons to Believe, he says, The God who inspired the Bible is the same God who made the universe, earth, and all life. This God is the very definition of truth, and therefore nature's record will never contradict Scripture and vice versa. Okay, uh, wanted to make another shout-out to Southern Evangelical Seminary and Bible College. Um, this, is, this is a seminary I went to. I just wanted to, uh, if, you, if you've been watching this whole series, you've heard me say it many times, but I wanted to... Um, uh, recommend this seminary to you if you want to dive deeper into apologetics, learn more things about scientism and, and how to deal with it. Uh, I recommend Southern Evangelical Seminary and Bible College. Uh, all their 
degrees are online, but they also have a campus in North Carolina that you can go to in person. Uh, it's, it's near Matthews, uh, North Carolina, uh, near Charlotte, by the way. Um, and they have degrees all the way from certificates uh, to uh, bachelor's degrees to Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Master of Theology, Doctor of Ministry, Ph.D., and they, they put a, a big emphasis on apologetics, but you can learn anything there. Philosophy, theology, biblical studies, biblical languages, count, uh, you know, uh, uh, pastoral classes like pastoral counseling, all that stuff. So uh, I highly recommend it. If you are interested in these topics I've been covering, then go to ses.edu and, and see uh, how much further you can go. Okay, And also I wanted to recommend Kingdom Preparatory Academy, which is the... Uh, classical Christian school that my kids go to here in Lubbock, Texas. It's a classical Christian school. Uh, it goes all the way from pre-K to 12th grade, and uh, it's a classical Christian model, uh, university model. The students go to school uh, Monday, Wednesday, Friday for a lot of a long time. I think it kind of changes as they get older, but it's a university model, so they, they have that, that schedule Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Tuesday, Thursday, they're home. You can spend more time with your kids if you're able to. Um, and it also prepares them for that, that schedule they'll be doing in college. It's classical education, so it puts a high degree, uh, high emphasis on reason and learning how to think. They don't tell your students what to think. It's, it's how to think. And it's all done in the context of a Christian worldview, uh, viewing the world through the lens of the Bible and serving Jesus Christ. So, if you are looking for a classical Christian alternative to education in the Lubbock, Texas area, I highly recommend Kingdom Preparatory Academy. You can go to KP, uh, excuse me, kingdomprep.org if you want to check out more information on them. Find the phone number. If You can just Google it if you want to. Find the phone number. Give them a call. Pay them a visit. We'd love to, to, to see you around. So I recommend KPA. And, um, yeah, so I was going to do one more episode uh, in this series I was just going to do one last episode talking about what is the gospel and what should a new Christian be doing. Um, I don't, <laughs> I don't want to uh, deceive myself and think that uh, my series is going to be saving people left and right. You know, that's the work of God, and and usually is done mainly in in relational uh, situations. But I just wanted to uh, have this last episode that will talk about what is the gospel. How do you become a Christian, and what should Christians be doing uh, just to cover all our bases? So I, I can't wait to see you there, and I hope you have a great day.